Scala Radio presents Beethoven, The Basics, the podcast with Andy Bush. Hi, I'm Andy Bush, and thanks for downloading the third Beethoven, The Basics podcast. These are bite-sized episodes based on the four-part Scala radio series of the same name, which originally broadcast in April 2020 as part of our celebrations of the great composer's 250th birthday. These are perfect little bite-sized chunks to have on in the background whilst you're doing stuff, washing the dishes, taking a walk, sat on a bus, hiding from the kids. We've covered his early life and the musical influences on the young Ludwig, And this podcast takes a look at some of his early works, starting off by getting to grips with some terminology. Episode 3, Beethoven's Early Works. So this journey into classical music is new for me, and maybe it is for you too. And I'm learning all the time. With this in mind, I have to admit I was hugely confused when I saw the term W.O.O. Like, what on earth's a W.O.O.? Is it the same as Beverly Hills 90210? In which case, for Beethoven, it could have been Bon W.O.O. Thankfully, Scala Radio's very own Jack Pepper, host of the Culture Bunker on Saturday afternoons, is on hand to help. An opus basically means work. It's classical music's way of categorising different pieces, not necessarily by date of when they were written, but by date of when they were published. So a composer's opus one tends to be the first piece of music they wrote that was published and released commercially to the wider world. Now, in the case of particularly Beethoven, but also some other composers of the era, a W-O-O means a work without opus. So it's a number that basically doesn't have a number at all. It's a piece of music that was not published, that was not released commercially. It might be because the work was unfinished. uh, It might be just because only fragments of the piece were written. Maybe the composer didn't want it published. In the case of Beethoven... He was an ardent perfectionist. So even with something like his Fifth Symphony, with that famous opening, da-da-da-dum, da-da-da-dum, you know, one of the most famous pieces of music ever written, he sent the manuscript of that off to the publishers and then within a few months sent them a, a whole book of notes with, oh, I think I'd like to change this and I'd like to tweak that in the symphony. He was constantly revising even his most celebrated masterpieces. Beethoven was a perfectionist. Beethoven wrote five piano concertos, all of them pretty epic according to my Scala Radio colleague Simon Mayo, who made them the focus of his epic Saturday slot earlier in the year. But wait, did he write five or was there something before the first? He was only 14 years old when he wrote his piano concerto number zero. And it's an example of a young man really following the style of other older composers around him, people like Mozart and Haydn. It's interesting that there's a story of a young Beethoven going to uh, a performance of a piano concerto by Mozart. And after hearing the concert, Beethoven said, there's no way I'll be able to write like that. So I like to listen to the piano concerto number zero and think of the 14 year old Beethoven trying to kind of compete with Mozart to try and compete with his idol and write something that sounded as elegant and as developed and thought through as the Mozart piano concertos. I don't know about you, but this whole zero thing has kind of blown my mind a bit. Is it like train stations when they add a new platform and they call it Platform Zero, like King's Cross? What's all that about? So when I think Beethoven, I think arms in the air, dusty hair, doing his composing, leading an orchestra and looking suitably wild. 
But imagine being lucky enough to see the man himself sit down at a piano. What was he like? Jack Pepper cast some light on this. Well, the word that comes up again and again in accounts from the time is rough. He would sit at the piano, he'd break strings with his wild flowing hair and big hands. He would uh, be, I suppose, the equivalent of a musical vandal. He could play with great emotion, great power and great strength. That's one account. But it is interesting that if you look at the instruments of the time, pianos were a lot smaller, uh, they didn't have as many notes, they couldn't go as high and as low, uh, and they weren't as strong. So you couldn't play as loudly on a piano in Beethoven's day as you could on a modern-day piano. They just weren't built for that kind of pummeling. And it could be argued that maybe we've misunderstood Beethoven as a piano player. Maybe this sort of historical image of an angry man with wild hair has taken over. If you listen to some of Beethoven's piano music, it's exquisitely delicate. There are really sensuous moments, surely not the kind of moments that would break many strings. So we've heard how watching Beethoven play piano was an experience in itself. He would batter the thing. I'm seeing immediate rock parallels here to more modern instrument destroyers like Jerry Lee Lewis or Nirvana's Kurt Cobain. So did this unique style of playing the piano affect the way he wrote music? Conductor Carlo Rizzi offers an insight. His way of playing uh, was also like his way of uh, composing. It was definitely very clear, very refined, but also very powerful. And you can see this uh, in the way that he writes uh, for, the, for the piano. Indeed, uh, you know, Beethoven composed 32 sonatas, uh, and from the sonata number one to the sonata number 32, there is a, a big, big, big uh, development, uh, not only in his composition idea, but also in the way that he approached uh, the technicality of the, of the instrument, uh, becomes much more percussive. Uh, I don't dare, but you know, I would like to use the, the word violent. It's not violent, but uh, it's very powerful. It's like uh, you know, the difference uh, between uh, having in front of you a, a very agile and uh, graceful person and a very strong person that just with the presence uh, tells you, hi, here I am and now you're going to listen to me. And this is why I, and maybe you too, are drawn to Beethoven. Yeah, he looks like someone who you'd let get served ahead of you at a busy pub because he looks like a bit of a nutter. But like many times in life, the warning of do not touch impels us to do quite the opposite. I'm drawn to him because, as we've learned in this first episode, he came into this world fighting and then spent every day of the remainder of his life engaged in some form of combat. Musical, physical, legal, protecting what he saw as rightfully his own. He was a disruptor. He set out to shake things up and didn't care a jot for reputations or what people thought of him. Here's Matthew Barley. Even from the very beginning, even from his Opus 1 piano trios, he always had these sort of trademarks of uh, shock and awe tactics, if you like. Um, one of the things I enjoy about Beethoven so much was that he was not scared to frighten his audience. And I think he did this deliberately. It was a push against... Uh, so much of the music that was written before Beethoven's time that was written for the courts. Very elegant, uh, not designed to push boundaries or upset over anyone. And, uh, and Beethoven was very much in a different vein. He didn't want to kowtow to anybody. Um, and he was really happy to put little passages in his music that would really shock people, make them sit up and take notice. 
Think punk rock. Think the Sex Pistols. That snarling reaction against what they saw as the boring conformity of the time. It's all connected. And unlike John Lydon, Beethoven never ended up doing an advert for butter. It seems to me that all the greatest, most intimidating and most revolutionary musicians and bands pushed so hard that they pretty much all malfunctioned and destroyed themselves in the end. Like a star or sun inevitably devouring all in its path before it suddenly dies out. The Beethoven tornado did exactly the same thing. Here's clarinetist Julian Bliss. Weber was also fairly critical of Beethoven and once said, the very indeed almost incredible inventiveness of which he is possessed is accompanied by such confusion in the organization of his ideas that only his early compositions appeal to me while the later ones seem to me nothing but utter chaos let's round off this podcast by getting to grips with his first completed symphony he wrote nine in total and here's conductor jonathan hayward to tell us about symphony number one first performed in 1800 when Ludwig was 30. This first symphony is bright, full of spirit, and like all of his symphonies, incredibly relatable. Relatability to the human experience, if you will. I think that's what really makes Beethoven's music not only interesting, but why it's still so important to everyday life today is that his music everyone can kind of relate to. So how does this first symphony compare to his final one? Jonathan Hayward's on hand to shed some light. What's been really, really interesting during this kind of time off that I've had uh, is that I'm looking by default. I'm looking at Beethoven 1 because I'm, I was supposed to be doing it in Detroit uh, in May. And I also am looking at Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, which I was supposed to be doing in Oregon, uh, Portland, Oregon, with the Oregon Symphony. And... To compare these two works while looking at them, you know, in depth while I'm studying, what is interesting is what you see is the full development of this composer's trajectory of the symphonic tradition, but also the depth of his emotion as he goes on throughout his life. And so for me, it's if you just look at this first symphony, we only get kind of a taste of his, his kind of emotional depth that we really find and we really kind of feel by the Ninth Symphony. And for me, that's, I think, comparing these is kind of, you just get deeper and deeper to his emotional life, his trajectory. We'll get to know his Ninth Symphony, the choral, in a later episode of Beethoven The Basics. But in the next couple of podcasts, we're exploring the significant people in his life starting with the objects of his affections and his, spoiler alert, pretty hopeless love life. 
but my God, he was a trier. I hope you'll join me, Andy Bush, for that. And in the meantime, if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe. And if you'd like to find out more about classical music, check out Scarlet Radio. There's a weekly film music show with Mark Kermode every Saturday at 1, a weekly show devoted to video game music with Lucy Holland on Saturdays from 5, and if you want to catch up on those or any of our shows, then listen again via the free app or at scarlaradio.co.uk. Thank you to the London Philharmonic Orchestra for providing the music clips used in this podcast, and you can find out more about the LPO's projects and buy their recordings at lpo.org.uk. Scala Radio presents Beethoven, The Basics, the podcast with Andy Bush.